You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. In today's Advanced Persistent Chats episode on Wiley Connected, Matthew Travis, the Deputy Director for the Department of Homeland Security's newly formed Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and Dan Sutherland, the agency's lead lawyer, talk with Wiley Ryan attorneys Megan Brown and Mike Diakuski about the agency's mission to defend federal networks and secure private infrastructure against cyber threats. Welcome to another edition of the Wiley Connected podcast. Joining us on today's Wiley Connected is Matthew Travis, who's the first deputy director for the DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. As deputy director, he supports the CISA director in overseeing the Cybersecurity Division, the Infrastructure Security Division, and the National Risk Management Center, along with the Emergency Communications Division. Mr. Travis's background includes serving as vice president for Homeland Security for Cadmus, a security professional services firm, and co-founding a Homeland Security consultancy. Prior to that, he served as an officer in the U.S. Navy. We also have Dan Sutherland, who is the lead lawyer for the newly created CISA. He's been an associate general counsel at the Department of Homeland Security and a senior executive at the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Megan. Thank you. Great. So lots going on with DHS. We also have uh, Mike Diakuski, one of our associates here from our TMT practice at Wiley Ryan. Mike, why don't you give us a little bit of a background to set the table here for our discussion? Sure. And thanks, Megan. We should start by highlighting that DHS has engaged with the private sector, especially critical infrastructure operators, on a variety of cyber issues, uh, typically through two-way information sharing and incident response and forensics. Policymakers have long wanted to clarify this aspect of DHS's mission and ask Congress to reorganize the National Protection and Programs Directorate, NPPD, which is typically housed these cyber activities. So Homeland Security Committee leadership, in particular Chairman Mike McCall, drafted and shepherded the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act through Congress. The bill was signed into law on November 16th, And the newly formed agency will be responsible for protecting critical infrastructure from threats both cyber and physical. Because most critical infrastructure operations are in the private sector, the agency will be working closely with industry players to secure and harden their networks. So first, congratulations, gentlemen, on the creation of this new agency. Can you give our listeners a sense of the process leading here? Well, it was a long process, Megan. And, you know, I've just been in the job six months, so I didn't have to suffer through the long trials going back a few years. And and frankly, a lot of the credit goes to the previous administration that first really teed this up. Ultimately, we were able to get both the House and Senate seeing the, the value in doing this for the department. And as Mike said, the legislation was passed uh, on, on, on Friday. What it does is uh, one, it gets rid of what was a very awkward and uh, ineffective name. I mean, to be the lead civilian cyber agency and not have cyber in your name, but rather a, a, a odd assortment of letters that don't really equate to anything was not helpful. Uh, it gives us the ability to reorganize, uh, which we need to do. We have now an ability to focus on the cyber and physical infrastructure missions. And it also uh, allows us to recruit more effectively with with the brand and the name and the freedom to to, to kind of re-engineer the enterprise. That's great. So I'd like to get a feel for what is new here. How is CISA, I mean, it's more than just a name change, right? Although it is an important name change, as Chris Krebs has made very clear. Um, what's its mission? I mean, what what is this going to really do for the private sector? 
you know, it is more than a name change. In addition to the ability to reorganize, so we, you know, NPBD had, among other things, the Federal Protective Service, which has a critical mission. Uh, these are the, the law enforcement officers who guard federal courthouses and Social Security Administration buildings. Important mission, but not necessarily in the in the lane of cyber and security and physical infrastructure security. And we also have the Office of Biometric Information Management. So this is the identity management of fingerprints and facial recognition that power everything from uh, when when individuals apply for visas to come to this country to frequent travel programs like PreCheck and, and Global Entry. Again, port mission, but not necessarily in our lane. And so it, it allows us to reorganize an operation that, that was not necessarily geared to focus on the cyber and physical mission areas. And if I can add just a little bit too, historically, we were um, an office attached to the secretary's office, a few hundred people attached to the secretary's office. Over these years, we've grown to almost 4,000 employees and over $3 billion in budget. It's not an office anymore. So it's this statute um, creates CISA as a, a new operational component within the Department of Homeland Security, just as FEMA, Secret Service, and, and the others. So it really elevates the mission of, the, of this organization within the department. As an aside, how independent, I mean, independent agencies have their own meaning, but how independent is it from now the secretary's office? Because I always felt like a lot of the cyber functions before were really tied up with the secretary's office. Is this really its own sort of standalone agency still within DHS, but is it really independent? It's within the Department of Homeland Security. So we all report to the secretary. We support the secretary in the in the work that she's called to do and laid out in statute. So it's part of the Department of Homeland Security. But instead of being an office attached to the secretary and kind of uh, leaning on the infrastructure of the department, it's now become its own operational component with a, a, a standalone um, organization, which is just much more realistic. I mean, Matt, we've got now people all over the country. We have field offices all over the country as well. So it allows us to uh, gives us the stature and status within the department as a, you know as an operational entity and not attached to the secretariat. Over time, I think you'll see us develop our own. Uh, whether it's uh, you know and, uh, one of the initial things we'll do is we'll have our own office of chief counsel. You know, heretofore, you know, Dan's team of attorneys has been directly attached to the to the general counsel of the department. So we'll have our own office of chief counsel. We may down the road look to have our own procurement authority. So there are some some uh, mission support mechanisms that we will detach from the CIO's mission from from the, from headquarters. It gives us a little more flexibility, a little more uh, freedom to tailor those services to best meet those those uh, missions of cyber and physical uh, protection. Okay. Thanks. And how will existing functions like information sharing through the NKIC and the automated information sharing programs be affected? And participants that are currently engaging uh, in information exchange with the department, how will they be impacted? Really shouldn't change anything at all. So the programmatics, you know, this legislation did not give us any new authorities. Uh, it changed our name and gave us the ability to reorganize and really chisel and granite that, that CISA is the lead civilian cyber agency. So the programs uh, shouldn't change and, and won't change, whether it's AIS or Einstein or, or CDM, nor should it change how the, the private sector or, or other uh, stakeholders engage with us. Uh, if anything, it'll make it easier because one of the things we're doing in this authority to reorganize is looking to consolidate some of the stakeholder engagement functions. You know, uh, 
I didn't mention earlier, NPPD was very much an Articles of Confederation type of structure <laughs> where you had these five quasi-semi-autonomous uh, subcomponents that kind of did what they wanted to do with a, a layer of somewhat relevant but not compelling management uh, on top. Uh, that's now changed. So we're taking, you know, we're spinning off the, the FPS, spinning off the biometrics and taking those three entities, which is, and actually the legislation created, elevated the Office of Emergency Communications up higher. So between emergency communications, the cyber division, the infrastructure security division, and the national risk management center creating a unified model that will probably consolidate some of those functions. So stakeholders will have one point of entry to CISA not having to go through two or three different entry points. As someone who helps companies interact with DHS, that is very much welcome. I think folks have been a little confused out in the you know real world thinking, where do, where's our touch point? You know, what are all these acronyms? What do they mean? Or they grew up with U.S. CERT and they're still struggling with where all the pieces fit. Right, exactly. And this should alleviate a lot of that. Great. So DHS, as you alluded to, is at the center of a lot of federal activity right now on cybersecurity. From the private sector's perspective, at least the folks I deal with, that's very much welcome. I think people see DHS as a really good partner. It's non-regulatory by nature. It's making services available. It has a value proposition to offer. But there are a lot of things going on, um, including work related to identifying systemic risks, which is something that Chris Krebs talked about on Friday. In July, you guys announced the National Risk Management Center, which is within CISA. Can you tell us specifically about what's going on with that center's efforts and how you're engaging the private sector there? Sure. Let me first kind of give the the you know, remind everyone of the rationale behind that and why we we took what used to be the office of cyber and infrastructure analysis, kind of a modeling and analytics shop, and created the National Risk Management Center. You know, the, the department's 15 years old, and it was founded on the premise, uh, you know, in response to, you know, physical terrorism by terrorist groups. Uh, all well and good, and the focus was really on information sharing, you know, connecting those dots that we weren't doing prior to 9-11. And so for the past, uh, certainly since NPBD has been around, uh, and, now, and now CISA, we spent a lot of time just on that information sharing piece, because that's, you know, downgrading classified intelligence and giving it to state and local jurisdictions or, or the 16 sectors of critical infrastructure. What's changed since the department was founded is, is that the threat is no longer just from terrorist groups. You know, 30 years ago, we were all at risk of being annihilated by Soviet ICBMs, and we still are. But nation states weren't targeting individual companies, and they are now, uh, whether it's Russia, Iran, North Korea, <laughs> China. They are now targeting electric utilities. They're targeting Wall Street banks. They're targeting major retailers. And so that's an unfair fight. Uh, and, and so uh, industry realized that they needed to link arms more closely with government because they need a better understanding of the threat landscape and they need to, you know, the availability of all the resources that the federal government can bring. At the same time, we realize that we can't adequately defend the nation if we don't have partnerships with industry to see what's on their networks, understand their configuration, to better understand their data. So that there was a demand signal from industry to create a place where we could convene analysts, not only from from DHS, but analysts from electrical utilities or from the banks, and uh, as well as analysts from Department of Treasury or Department of Energy or, or the Pentagon into one place to not share information, that you know, short game response instance, but the long game of how do we manage national risk? What are those national critical functions that drive our economy and enable our security propel our American way of life? And if those go sideways, it's a bad day in America. You know, things like the electrical grid, elections, the, the clearing function in financial services. If those things are attacked, it has national implications. So let's so it's not the the National Risk Management Center, it's the National Risk Management Center. 
And that's the approach we've taken is to bring in those 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 partners to look at where the vulnerabilities lie, to jointly assess the threat, to work to identify those cross-sector cascading impacts and dependencies. And and based on that analysis, then to identify what are the remedies? So how do we actually reduce risk? Maybe it's sanctions, new authorities, new laws, new technologies, new partnerships, you know, whatever they may be, figure out how we can reduce that risk because the threat's not going away. This is the fight of the century uh, in, the, in the cyber domain. And our adversaries are going to continue to do things to either disrupt, compromise, or, or, or take us down. And so that is why the National Risk Management Center was created. And we are you know, 90 days into it and, and working to first identify what those national critical functions are. Are you guys envisioning that the, the Risk Management Center is going to come out with products like reports that say, here's the 35 most critical risks to um, our infrastructure, or here's the 10 key functions, and then there will be follow-on work related to that? Or is it going to remain sort of a, um, a collaboration without so much you know, work product deliverables? There will certainly be reports for transparency in terms of what uh, we're what we're seeing, but it's not going to be a deliverable-driven type of entity. That's what the OCIA was. The, the you know before we repurposed that part of the enterprise, they used to just do reports. They would you would have a request, please do this modeling or please do this analysis on GPS vulnerabilities, and then you get a report. What we're trying to do now is develop longer-term campaign plans to work with those sectors, the stakeholders, to to drive down risk. So we'll certainly be reporting out what what those vulnerabilities are, and those those may be obviously you know closely held. What, but more importantly, how do we how do we reduce the risk? And so you'll see some deliverables, but but the driver is going to be actually a long term planning element to to uh, buy down risk. Okay. This, for example, like the election security uh, work that we did falls under the National Risk Management Center, okay. and that allowed us to identify risk in the election infrastructure um, of our country and then to um, identify um, projects to try and drive down that that risk. We did, um, you know, dozens of um, cyber hygiene scans. Um, we sent hunt teams, um, you know, and on and on the, the list went. But that, that came underneath the National Risk Management Center. So it was an identification of risk, but then action attacking that risk. Okay. Um, can we talk for a second about how supply chain fits into that? A lot of our clients are actively involved in some of your supply chain work and other supply chain efforts at different agencies. But how does supply chain fit into the National Risk Management Center? And what should people be looking for from your supply chain work? So supply chain risk was really one of the inaugural uh, initiatives that we kicked off in in the center, in addition to identifying those national critical functions. So we launched the Tri-Sector Supply Chain Task Force information technology, communications, and, and the financial services sector to look at, again, how can we reduce the the risk in the supply chain, which is increasingly reliant upon uh, foreign-made parts and uh, components. Luckily for us, the Pentagon has, has already done a lot of work on supply chain risk to the defense industrial base. And in fact, MITRE came out with a, uh, a report earlier this year calling, called Delivered Uncompromised. And that really has provides a playbook for how to pursue a dedicated campaign to identify where those risks are, so where, how do we under, better understand the supply chain that goes into the components that the, the department, the sectors are procuring, and, and how do we kind of vet, not that we're going to be a consumer reports for suppliers, but we should be able to 
better identify where some of those risks are for countries where the legal regimes aren't uh, rigorous enough uh, in terms of uh, freedom of intellectual property and, and, and kind of independence from, from the government. Those are some of the risk factors that go into where a supply chain might be at risk. Yeah, I would say with the supply chain issues are, are two. One is there are in the supply chain, you can find malevolent actors who are inserted in there or insert themselves in the supply chain. And you can also have actors with inadequate risk management postures for themselves and thereby compromising the supply chain. So this is a project, the, the Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force has about 26 different entities in there, a, a, a large number of private sector uh, organizations are on this task force, and they're going to try to, first of all, identify ways to identify those players in the supply chain who need more attention, whose risk management postures or are not what they should be, or who introduce risk management issues into the supply chain. And then, but not just identify weaknesses, but also try to find ways to incentivize good risk management decisions as people look at their supply chain. So not only identifying problem areas, but also incentivizing good choices. So it'd be a really, I think, fascinating public-private exercise. Yeah, I think one of the things just from an outsider's perspective or a private sector perspective is some of the requirements in the DOD space are a little on the onerous side and maybe, you know, aren't quite as easily transferred into the broader private sector ecosystem. Um, and I guess the other thing that has some folks concerned is how you balance transparency with what you guys are doing, right? I know you guys have, have long talked about expanding access to classified information, clearance process, things like that, because folks want to know what you know, but it's hard for you guys to be transparent always about what you see when you're talking with the broader private sector outside of, say, the defense industrial base. So very much look forward to seeing what the uh, task force comes up with. So at the heart of a lot of these efforts, it sounds like, is really an emphasis on public-private partnerships. Um, our listeners would love to get a better sense of the operational aspects of working with DHS, not necessarily the whole PCII handbook, but sort of what does it look like to actually come in and, and seek help? Or what do you do when DHS calls you and says, you know, hey, we, we see a little problem we'd like to talk to you about? Sure. It's a great question, Megan. You know, we, CISA, exist almost entirely on the basis of our ability to compel folks to be part of our voluntary programs. We have one regulatory authority. We regulate the, the chemical industry from a security standpoint. Everything else is a voluntary partnership basis. So the information sharing, the training, the exercises to include when, when uh, either companies or state and local tribal territorial jurisdictions call us in the wake of a cyber event. And so we need to simplify all those touch points. And I think the legislation will enable us to do that, as I referenced earlier. But we want to make sure that when stakeholders contact us, that we're providing value, we are, we are being clear and helpful and that we're making ultimately a difference in their security posture. If we're just involved in sending them guides and, and PowerPoint slides and and other things, I don't I don't think that's compelling. I think being able to help, I mean, I think we've seen this in some of the recent engagements we've had with whether it's the elections is a good example. I think we made a difference there. I, I think we're making a difference with some of our protective security programs out in the field with companies and jurisdictions, but faith-based organizations. So we want it to be easy to reach us and that ultimately we're, we're providing value to them. Dan, you want to talk just briefly about some of the alphabet soup of legal protections mm -hmm. that you might think of um, when you pick up the phone and talk to DHS? 
Are you ready for a three-hour legal seminar? No, you have, because... you have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, I say that because everywhere you turn in our organization, we have an answer to that question. The whole organization is built around this. So, for example, you mentioned protected critical infrastructure information, which basically was the Congress realized that we want to get private sector entities with security questions about how they've organized themselves to share information with the government. How are they going to do that? Why are they going to do that? If they share their plans with the government, the federal executive branch will have to give it to the Congress, will have to produce it in Freedom of Information Act. The rest. So they created this regime, protected critical infrastructure information, which allows an entity to share that information with the executive branch. We're able to think it through with them and help them improve it, but it's protected from civil litigation, from a Freedom of Information Act, and on and on it goes. In the cyber arena, we have the Cyber Information Sharing Act of 2015, also CISA, um, <laughs> which is producing you know confusions, I suppose, or, or maybe maybe it's easier. And we have two CISAs in, in our world, but uh, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015 has all sorts of uh, protections for companies to essentially incentivize them to share information. If you share information with us, you don't have an antitrust issue. You don't lose legal privileges. Um, you don't um, lose your data in Freedom of Information Act or Sunshine laws and on and on the list goes. There's liability protection. So in a way, it's an easy question you ask to answer. In a way, it's a hard question to answer because it would truly take a long time to three hours or whatever to walk you through all the different regimes. So I think that's one thing we're really trying to to do with, and I think the introduction of CISA allows us to do, is to talk, really introduce this concept to the private sector. You can interact with this agency. There's value here, and it doesn't compromise what you need to protect. Yeah, we've had very good um, experiences calling up either on an anonymous basis, getting some guidance about something, or on a more formal basis, providing information to you. It is you know, take some ramp up to really learn all the regimes and acronyms. But we've had very good experience both with your analysts and with legal counsel being able to really work out the operational specifics of how those engagements are going to happen. So thank you for that. And related to this point, what kinds of activities, system anomalies, or problems should companies be bringing to DHS? And with this reorganization, to whom should they bring that information? On the cyber front? That's right. Well, through the NCIC, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, that's still our hub, our central node for supporting the 16 sectors of critical infrastructure, state and local jurisdictions on not only when things go wrong, if there's an intrusion or if there's a hack, and if that's the case, we'll, as requested, deploy a hunt and incident response team to help assess the intrusion and, and help mitigate the damage and, and work in the response to that. But we also work left of boom, right, to, through cyber hygiene scanning, through other, some of the other preventive and preparedness services that we provide. So the, you know, we still want people to come to the NCIC. That's still the, the place to, you know, the, the first call to be made. And if folks call the FBI first, that's fine too, because we work very closely with them. So it, there's no, I mean, they're going to do the investigation. We're going to do the technical analysis. And in, in many cases, we're, we're going out jointly to an incident. Right. And that's a good point of clarification when it makes sense to approach CISA or the Bureau, helping companies and entities understand when it makes sense to approach one or the other. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, we've got a rep from the FBI who works out of our facility. She's a full-time liaison, and so uh, we are we are in contact with the FBI every day in a number of cases and fronts and, and intelligence issues. So there really there's no wrong answer to call us or to call the FBI. If a company thinks there's there's some funny business going on with their networks, uh, either way, you're going to get the the same agencies coming to 
provide some support. Thanks so much, gentlemen. That wraps another edition of Wiley Connected's podcast, Talking Cyber and New Developments in the Federal Agency Space. Tune in next time for another edition of our podcast, Wiley Connected, where we talk tech and policy. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Rhine LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.